Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by our host and star of this show, Jim Rooney. This is Toe the Rubber, episode 345 on our network. Before we bring Jim on, he's got some great stories today, uh, very appropriate to the time we're in. We're approaching the general managers meetings and then the winter meetings coming up. So a lot happening in baseball right now. And Jim's tapped into it all in addition to our usual pitching talk. But uh, I want to thank our faithful audience, 57,000 plus subscribers. Continue to give us support. Grassroots MLB front offices, 74 countries tuning in. Make sure you give Jim five stars today. Write some nice comments because we do battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in Major League Baseball. And to our newest friend in the podcast world, Blackout Coffee, their slogan is Be Awake, Not Woke. Uh, We appreciate them reaching out and and wanting to join us. They felt their vibe was similar to our vibe. I'm drinking my Blackout Coffee espresso actually in my Blackout Coffee cup um, right now. So all hopped up for our doubleheader Thursday today, starting with Jim. We want to thank them. Make sure you go to their website. It'll be in our show notes, Blackout Coffee. Uh, use the code David, D-A-V-I-D, all capital letters with the number 20 after it. You'll get 20% off. That's a thank you to all of our listeners. And pass it out to friends, too. We don't care. Give it to them as well. Holidays are coming up. People need their coffee. And then um, after that first purchase, you'll get 15% in perpetuity just as a, uh, a part of being a friend with Blackout Coffee. So we appreciate you guys. And with that, I know, Jim, you've got some stories. I wish people could hear your stories before the show because they're, um, they're, they're, they're wonderful. We'll have to have a separate segment when we're all said and done with this. We'll be off the record here with Jim Rooney. We'll share all those other stories. But uh, welcome back to your show. And uh, I know you want to open up with a little recap of last week and then lead in with some, some very pertinent stories to what's happening in baseball right now. Yes, thank you, Dave. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, one of the things is that, you know, during the course of the week that usually happens with me is things pop up, whether it's in Major League Baseball or at the facility I'm working at or different things like that. And it, it just reminds me of things um, either from my past experiences or um, situations that are presently occurring. And uh, so in that in that real, uh, I guess you would say, twist of fate where everybody thought that Council would go to the Mets uh, because of his connection with David Stearns and uh, the billionaire owner would uh, break the bank in order to sign him. It turns out at the last second, uh, the Cubs come up with $8 million a year and sign Craig Council to an extended contract, which I think in a little bit kind of shocked at least the public. Um, They thought with his family back in Milwaukee, uh, he was going to let the Brewers match the offer the Mets would give him. And and then make a decision. Uh, the Brewers would make a decision. Uh, you would think that it'd be tough for the Brewers to pay a manager $8 million a year. Um, you wouldn't think that the small market club would reset the uh, salary structure for major league managers. But the Cubs jumped in, and uh, they weren't shy, and I guess they got their man. Um, so it brought me back to uh, one year with Milwaukee. It was pretty new into council's uh, start in the uh, Doug Melvin regime, working in front office. He had just come off the field. I had known him as a uh, a player for the Brewers when I was the pitching coordinator. Um, great guy, very intelligent, very intelligent off the field, very intelligent on the field. Um, and, uh, you know, being a utility infielder, you know, he, he saw the game from – all aspects of of how to win the game and what it takes to win the game. Um, so he was working 
probably his first or second year in the uh, front office. And I don't know if there was a pro- if he had a prior relationship with Zach Greinke, but the Doug Melvin pulls off the big Zach Greinke trade, and now uh, Zach Greinke is going to join Giovanni Gallardo at the head of the rotation. So it was qu- quite a coup as far as in the uh, development of the Brewers into a winning ball club. And uh, in spring training that year, uh, two of the major league pitching, uh, two of the major league baseball coaches, uh, Garth Org and Eddie Cedar, they were kind of busting my chops. I had moved over to scouting and was, you know, traveling nationally. And they kept busting my chops through text messages and other messages. Hey, when are you coming to spring training? Say hello to us. When are you coming to spring training? Say hello to us. So uh, the funny thing occurred is, I finally am home for a couple of days in Scottsdale. I drive over to spring training in Phoenix and Maryvale. Uh, I'm looking to just slide in, say hello to the people I know and slide out. No real, I'm hoping for no, no noise or fanfare around it. I don't want to attract any attention to myself. And I slide in and I'm there. And of course, uh, Eddie Cedar and Garth are still on the field. They're finishing up batting practice on one of the backfields and they're hooting and hollering, calling my name out. And now, now there's all attention and Giovanni Gallardo and Zach Cranky are in the bullpens, which are just lined up about, you know, seven or eight mounds. And they're just behind where I'm standing. And, um, the ball gets away from Gallardo and I rest down near my feet. I pick it up. I, give it to him. He comes over, shakes hands, gives me a big hug. We talk for a little bit. Now he goes over and he brings Zach Greinke over with him. Um, and he introduces Zach Greinke to me and we're talking. And uh guy who had told him, this is my pitching coordinator when I first signed and all this other stuff. And uh, the funny thing about that was about a day or two earlier, the media when they introduced Zach Greinke, the Brewers introduced Zach Greinke. Uh, he was with the you know Brewer pitchers for a couple of days, and a reporter asked him at the end of a workout, um, you know, how, how do you get along with Giovanni Gallardo? I mean, you know, he he's the ace, and now you're here. I mean, we can have co aces, and uh, do you guys talk? Do you guys get along? You know, what what's your thoughts? And Greinke says, uh, "Well, I." I uh, He's a, he's a good guy, but I don't really know him much. He talks less than I do. So, of course, I got a big laugh. But behind the scenes, you could see that there was a friendship going on between Giovanni and um, and Greinke. So that uh, following year, well, I think it was that spring training, I'm, I show up to see a pitcher in, uh, I believe it was Arcadia High School near Scottsdale, Arizona. And it was during spring training. And as I'm walking into the ballpark, I see Zach Greinke riding a bicycle up, parks it, and he's waiting for the pitcher to warm up on the side. So uh, I go over to him. I introduce myself. He says, yes, Jim, I I remember an old thing. You were Giovanni Gallardo's uh, pitching coordinator. And we start talking. And, you know, I know that uh, he doesn't necessarily – want to indulge in a lot of deep conversations. He was there to focus on that picture and, and, and stuff and what he enjoyed doing. Um, 
and learning how to uh, different things about scouting and stuff. And next thing you know, he starts asking me questions. And we get into deep conversation about pitching, evaluating pitching. He's asking me what when a pitcher does this or when he does that. And we're having a, a very good conversation. So we watch that pitcher. And uh, just before the game starts, he's like, um, all right, I, I'm going to – I got to probably be leaving soon. My wife's, you know, back at the condo, you know, cooking dinner and the whole thing. I just kind of snuck away for a little bit. And I said, all right, great to uh, speak with you, Zach. Good luck this year. And he leaves on his bike. And next thing you know, about five, six minutes passes, and he comes back on his bike. And he's like, Jim, excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt. I got a couple more questions for you. Well, he left and came back three times to ask more conversations. Because every time we discuss something, I guess it, it uh, you know, a new question popped into his mind. And, and the conversation was getting pretty deep about evaluating pictures. So following spring training and all back then, the, the draft, amateur baseball draft was around the first week of June. And uh, we're having pre-draft meetings in Milwaukee at, uh, at Miller Park in, in, the, in the offices in the draft room. And we're going over some things. And, you know, for the audience, a normal setup is uh, there's all the uh, – Regional supervisors, national supervisors, assistant director of scouting, director of scouting, they're all in a room. And in the back row of tables, um, for the most part, they can come and go depending on what their responsibilities are. Is that If you want to say the small part of the analytics people, the general manager, assistant general manager, in this case, Craig Council, uh, special assistant to the general manager, Doug Melvin, and and they're we're engaged in conversation about the different players. We're we're going over them. We're ranking the boards. We're putting, let's say, the top hundred people on the main board, and then their side boards based on position. And we're ranking the whole thing. Uh, three to four, sometimes five area scouts. <clears throat> uh, each draft are invited in, and and they're there taking part of the conversation, the whole thing. And council says to uh, the director of scouting. Um, uh, Zach Grenker is wondering if he could come in and sit in the meeting. Um, and they said, yeah, yeah, sure. Have him come in. So Zach comes in, he's sitting in the meeting and, uh, the director of scouting then asks him, uh, Zach, I, I know that, uh, we have discussed this in the past that you went out during spring training and you saw some, some players and, uh, do you have any thoughts on them? Who, who would you like to talk about? And he very adeptly went down about six to eight hitters in the, uh, in the Phoenix, you know, Scottsdale area that he went out and saw during spring training. And, uh, he might even went the previous fall to, uh, the fall league or in some instruction of balls, but he, he had quite an extensive list of hitters and he broke them down really well. just like any, you know, quality all-star Cy Young caliber type pitcher would with some intelligence. And the uh, director of scouting says, uh, well, where's your pitchers? Didn't you see any pitchers? And he goes, I have to be honest with you. Um, trying to evaluate and break down pitchers, especially high school pitchers. Uh, that's way over my pay grade. I, I'm going to stick to the hitters. Anyway, you got Rooney and he takes care of the pitchers. And I just listen to him because he knows what the heck he's talking about. 
you know, and, uh, it's a nice endorsement from a pretty, uh, accomplished pitcher. People, people speak highly of his, a lot gets said about his, his being introverted, but I think it gets overplayed. You would know better than I do, but the, the word on him is, and we have guys on our network that have, have good knowledge of him as well as that extremely intelligent, extremely introspective, has a great baseball IQ. And that's an understatement. And, uh, Contrary to popular belief, he is very communicative when it comes to important things, like like his craft. Yes, my my experience, even though it was uh, you know a couple of spring trainings and and some meetings with Zach Greinke, is uh, it's highly intelligent, very nice person, extremely intelligent. Okay, once again on and off the field, very knowledgeable about what goes on the field. Okay. Um. You know, as far as being introverted, my experience is that um, he just enjoys having high-level conversations, and sometimes they get pretty deep. And I, I just don't think he has the patience to just uh, have, you know, chit-chat or conversation about uh, what he would deem, you know, nonsense, you, you know. And uh, I think because of that, it's like when uh, – when people come across something that's different and they they don't know exactly how to explain it, they attempt to put a label on it. And, and, and I think that in some of those instances, that's how he's been labeled. And I've, I found that uh, his personality, his conversations, his intelligence were was far different than what some people maybe, how some people maybe described him younger in his career. I, I thought he was an outstanding person to have a conversation with. So... That was the first thing that I was reminded of when, uh, you know, the news of council um, getting that opportunity with the Cubs and breaking the bank. The other one was I was I was really curious because I knew last week that the day after our podcast together that uh, Wiley and Will uh, podcast was going to have Hall of Fame pitcher Jim Palmer. And I've spoken about Jim Palmer in the past and in different ways that uh, – he helped me and has influenced me even to this day about a lot of concepts in developing pitchers and and being a pitcher. Um, especially. And, and I, I think I know the story you're going to tell. I want you to tell it, but he did remember that story, by the way, with the outfield. Stay out of his way. Is that the well, one? He remembered, he remembered me? He's got a great memory, like ridiculous memory. He was recalling things that we were just in shock, like weather pitch counts from 20 years ago. Um, he was great. So yeah, I tell, I, I didn't want to, sorry if I ruined the story. No, but I mean, you know, I, I don't know if it's part of my upbringing or, you know, uh, or, or what you would call it. But, uh, one of the things that has amazed me over the course of, uh, of my life is, uh, there's been instances where people come up and remember me from like 20 years earlier or whatever it is. And, and they're like, Hall of Fame players or coaches and stuff, and I'm amazed at, you know, why do they remember me, you know? I mean, um, but it's a lesson I carried with me the rest of my life that the, the greatest thing that you can do for especially a young kid is just to have interest in him and in his life and in his feelings and thoughts and remember him and uh, even uh, recite back some stories that they might have told you in the past. And, um, it really lifts a person's spirits and helps them, you know, take that leap of faith in themselves, um, you know, a little bit better than, you know, 
situations that maybe they've been ignored. So that brings me to the thing that popped up in the podcast. When Jim Palmer, I'll explain some reasons. I know a lot of depth in this story about this story, but when Jim Palmer mentioned that when he got to the big leagues at 18 and his first roommate was Robin Roberts, I was like, man, you want to talk about a small world? This is, this is amazing. You know, what goes around comes around. And I'll explain why. Uh, my freshman year at Cornell University, on our spring trip, before we played in the uh, Rollins tournament, which was a very popular tournament at that time, we played University of South Florida. And I was the starting pitcher. It was my first collegiate start. And the head coach of University of South Florida was Robin Roberts. And uh, I beat South Florida on that day. I, I had a pretty good day. And while I was warming up in the bullpen, I was shocked because at that time, South Florida, they didn't have this, the big stadiums that people have nowadays on the you know, Division One level, especially down south. So it was a lot of, uh, you know, chain link fence. So you could see some people walking in from the parking lot or whatever. And I looked up and I see my, uh, I go, wow, that looks like my sister. And it was my uh, my entire family, you know, came down from New York. My dad flew him down to see my first college game. So uh, I'm getting on the bus after we beat South Florida. And I had a pretty good day. And I see my dad walking through the parking lot to shake Robin Roberts's hand because he, even though he grew up a Yankee fan and used to walk to the ballpark with Mickey Mantle and all of those connections, he thought Robin Roberts was the best pitcher in baseball, just the way he went about things and the whole thing. And then later on, he thought the same about Jim Catfish Hunter. Pitch with your fastball, attack the hitter, you know, get weak contact, uh, early count outs, all these other things that we've discussed. So um, my dad says to Robin Roberts, um, pleasure to meet you, sir, after all these years, old thing. And, and, um, and Robin Roberts says, um, pleasure to meet you, Mr. Rooney. I would, uh, I would decipher that, uh, that, le- that young left-handed pitcher today, uh, uh, that's your son? And he goes, yes, sir, that's my son. And he goes, well, I'm going to keep an eye on that guy. Because uh, he's, he's pretty special. I'll be interested to see how he does. My father then relates a story that um, when I was born, I'm the eldest of five. My dad wanted to name me Robin after Robin Roberts. And my mom interceded and said, uh, no, we're not naming him Robin Roberts. We're naming him you know, James, which is my father's name. So Ron Roberts, my dad tells him that story. And then he says, Mr. Roberts, what I find amazing is that after 18 years, and you figure, give or take a couple of miles from New York to Tampa, in 1,500 miles, I find out that you named your son after me because the freshman first base at the University of South Florida was James Roberts. So Ron Roberts was hysterical laughing. They shook hands, the whole thing. And, uh, 
you know, you would think, okay, you know, nice story over, it's all over. Well, many years later, I'm in the minor leagues and I'm pitching. And who's the special consultant to the Phillies? Robin Roberts. And then I'm coaching at United States uh, Military Academy at West Point. Head coach, Danny Roberts, sergeant in the Army, eldest son of Robin Roberts. So after all these years, now I'm with Robin Roberts. And Danny Roberts, when he explained why he hired me as the pitching coach, he said, you know, you're, you're one of the few guys that I listen talk pitching nowadays. You, you talk about what my dad used to talk about. So that was quite a compliment. And uh, during those, that time with, you know, summer baseball camps and stuff, I would get the opportunity to, uh, you know, sit with Ron Roberts and talk baseball and talk pitching. So now we hear Jim Palmer on the podcast, Wiley and Will, tell the story that his first mentor in baseball in the major leagues was Ron Roberts. Now, people would think, how did Ron Roberts end up with the Orioles? Well, here's what happened. He's a legend in Philadelphia. And the Phillies were thinking that he's at his, at nearing the end of his career. And they didn't really have... Uh, a track record of dealing with, uh, well, how do we, um, how do we release a, a future hall of famer? You know, that's not good for uh, public relations and the whole thing. So they traded him to the Yankees because the Yankees had a long line of hall of famers, you know, that eventually faded into the sunset and he's in spring training with the Yankees. And at the end of spring training, the Yankees release him. And who picks him up? The Baltimore Orioles. Funny thing about that. My numbers could be incorrect. I could be off by, you know, a game or two. But my memory says that I think he might have thrown two or three shutouts that year against the Yankees. So now we're listening to this podcast. And Jim Palmer, Hall of Famer, is talking about his first roommate and mentor in Major League Baseball was Robin Roberts, the Hall of Famer. And here's the thing that because I had the, uh, the privilege and I was lucky enough to learn from both of them in my career, both of them talk very similar in the idea of you pitch in the Major League Baseball, you pitch with your fastball, and you pitch off your fastball. We've discussed in the past Palmer's you know, theory and thought process on how to pitch deep into games and the whole entire thing. And that's going to be the topic of our podcast today, pitching deep into games, workload mentality, as far as some um, off-season, pre-season, in-season training protocols. Um, I think it's appropriate. And and you and I didn't know each other until we we met, uh, you know, through the network of our podcast here. And and we've had a chance to meet in person and talk quite a bit develop a relationship but you and i missed each other by a couple weeks because that's where i signed out of high school with for uh, to play for dan roberts and tom miller who was coach of the basketball team uh, at west point so mm-hmm. you, you and i missed a uh, would have been fortuitous had we uh we've been there at the same time and, and uh, connected years later but uh it's funny how the world works like that but yeah not, not that i don't want to digress this isn't a no. memoir about me but <laughs> let's get to your, well, get to your hey, you could say that um all of a sudden, our relationship is the uh, Jim Palmer-Robin Roberts relationship, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then the last one that, that kind of hit me um, was the uh, 
other people in the different podcasts that your hosts have, have mentioned it. I know Jim Cott did uh, on his podcast was uh, the passing of Frank Howard. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so you would think, how the heck does Jim Rooney have anything to tell me about Frank Howard? Well, the funny thing was that in Buckshaw Walters last year with the Yankees, Frank Howard was a coach on his staff, major league coach. And uh, George Steinbrenner, the year started out where they were shut out. They were on the West Coast swing, and they were shut out by uh, three left-handed pitchers. And George was so um, angry and annoyed that he told Gene Michael, the general manager, and Buck Showalter, that why don't we have a left-handed batting practice thrower? How do we allow this? Well, in reality, they were shut out by Randy Johnson, Mark Langston, and Chuck Finley, all at the height of their their own respected careers. So George was going to uh, implant into the clubhouse his son Hal's college roommate, who was a left-handed pitcher. And uh, for, for whatever reason, you know, some of them obvious that we won't go into, uh, Gene Michael or Buck Showalter did not want that to happen. All right. So Gene Michael's assistant at the time uh, was a young guy named Tom May. And Tom May grew up in the same town that I grew up in when we moved into the suburbs, uh, Stony Point, New York. And while he was, uh, I believe, pitching for Rutgers University, he had some arm problems, and uh, I had worked with him and helped him at the time and and was able, able, even with some connections I had back then, get him to see the right doctors and the whole thing. And we struck up a friendship from since then. And uh, when I was coaching at Rockland Community College, the Yankees would host the uh, – junior college all-star game at Yankee Stadium. And when it first started, uh, two of the interns in the Yankee front office were Tom May and Brian Cashman, and they would uh, be present during the uh, all-star game festivities and the dinner. I, I, I played in three of those. Uh, they had it for the four-year schools as well. That's That was a phenomenal time. That was yeah. a, a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah, and uh, – Sometime in the future, I'll relate a story of what what young guy's um, probably childhood dream he never thought when uh, he stepped up to the plate in the All-Star game, Junior College All-Star game, and hit a grand slam, walk-off grand slam. But that's for another day. That's better than mine. I I had one of them. I had a uh, bases loaded, pouring rain. It's kind of like the natural scene, except I didn't hit the lights out. I hit a little bleeder up the middle to win the game. So kind of the... And same that, result, though. Same result. <laughs> yeah, we won it. We won it. It was a good, good time, though. A lot of fun. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I keep... So, um, so uh, Tom May, I'm, uh, I have my, uh, I'm working with the personal training business down in Manhattan, down in Soho. We had uh, facilities all over Manhattan, plus one, uh, plus one training clinics, plus one fitness clinics. And uh, I'm in my office, and he... He calls me up. Hey, Jim, can you do me a favor? We have to find a left-handed uh, batting practice pitcher. And I said, uh, okay. 
Um, I think I have a guy for you. He was a left-handed pitcher. He pitched for me at Pace University. Uh, it's going to take me a couple of days to uh, to track him down. He's an accountant somewhere, but uh, I think he's working in Manhattan or working in the city. So we'll see if we can coordinate something. He'll go in there. He'll throw strikes. He's a great guy. He's a phenomenal guy. His name was uh, Jerry Alvarado. Funny thing is, even to this day, Jerry lives uh, in North Carolina, right over the border from where I live in South Carolina, and we've been able to hook up a few times, um, you know, and reminisce. So I said to Tom, when, when do you need him? And he goes, well, like yesterday. I said, oh, okay. All right, it's good. I'm going to have to track him down. In the meantime, if it will help, I can, um, I can rearrange some of my training schedule here and, and help you out. I'll go, I'll go throw left-handed BP for you. When, on a daily basis, when do you have when when would I have to be up at uh, Yankee Stadium? He said, "Well, usually around four thirty. I said, "Okay, I can I can rearrange things. I can get that done." Um, and then when I find Jerry, we'll we'll take it from there. So I go up to throw batting practice, left-handed batting practice for the New York Yankees. So this this is Don Manningly, Wade Boggs, Paul O'Neill, Bernie Williams, Randy Velarde, all those. Uh, those are the years. Showalter's last year with the um, with the Yankees, and uh, after first day, um, Gene Michael's there. You know, you're getting ready to throw batting practice behind the cage. Gene Michael and Buck Showalter, and I'm sure the thoughts going through their head is, "I hope this guy throws enough strikes so that we can, you know, not have George's uh, George's connected guy in, in into our, in our clubhouse." And so it goes well in the whole thing. And now they want to, uh, you know, offer me the position and all. So I think it was about the second or third day I get to the stadium and you, and you should, you would dress in full uniform, but I was never given a jacket, you know? Uh, and there was a particularly cold day, uh, abnormally cold for that time of year little drizzle in the air and I'm out in the uniform and, you know, I've got sleeves on and stuff and I'm trying to stay warm, but it's, it's cold. And Frank Howard walks up and says, Hey, lefty, put this on. You're going to freeze to death out here. Put this on and stay warm until you got to throw BP. And he gives me his jacket. Now, of course it was by that time, it was like five sizes too big, but it, you know, as I was getting ready or sitting in the dugout waiting for my, uh, my group, uh, to hit, uh, you know, it served the purpose. It, it kept me warm. So when I heard all the stories that people have related about Frank Howard, one of the things that, you know, shined through was how unbelievably nice he was. I mean, this man would go out of his way to take care of anybody. And here he was on that day. He doesn't know me from a hole in the wall. And he goes, Hey, lefty, here's your, put this jacket on, stay warm. So I would have to concur with everybody that uh, did a little dedication to Frank Howard this past week that they were a thousand times correct. Yeah, I think every story, uh, every story that we had brought up on the air, which was really, you know, impromptu because there was no, nobody was aware that 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 was going to happen, his passing. But yeah, everybody had a very, a, a giant man in terms of his physical stature, but, uh, competitive, but, but kind hearted seems to be the theme 
of what everybody everybody had to to bring to the table. So that was that was a good story. What, did you give the jacket back or did you keep it? Yeah, after that day, no, I gave it back. Like I said, when when you use the word giant, that almost didn't even describe how big he was because uh, you know I tried to fit in this jacket. There's no possible way. <laughs> I thought you're gonna tell me you were wearing it right now during this podcast. That would have been a great ending. No, no, <laughs> no. But um, so it brings us to our, our topic for the day. And it's, um, it's something that Palmer, um, in his conversation with you guys, um, really stressed and it was outstanding. Um, you know, one of the things that, one of the things that sometimes makes you feel good about yourself is that, um, you're out there, you're trying to help people, you know, uh, you're trying to do the best for them individually. You're trying to uh, help them, you know, whether it's the player himself or the parents, you know, instill in their in their young ball player the the love for the game and 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 the fun that you know can be had from playing the game of baseball. And then you hear, you know, now I don't take it as odd because I learned from these individuals. So, of course, some of the things that I'm saying when they years later talk about it again, it makes you feel good that, you know, the two of you are on the same page. So for me, it's quite an honor to think that uh, me, Jim Rooney's on the same page as, you know, two Hall of Fame pitchers like Jim Palmer and Ron Roberts. But Palmer talked about in his conversation that, um, and his, his words are different than my words, but basically he was explaining, uh, pitching deep into games and workload and mentality part of the conversation he had with uh, Wiley and Will where, you know, the mentality of pitching deep into games, uh, we don't ask our young pitchers to do that. Uh, you know, let's say in the years leading up to being drafted, definitely not in the minor leagues nowadays, you see so many minor league pitchers get to the big leagues and they've never thrown a uh, hundred innings in, in a single season and then Palmer related that he threw 200-something innings like his first year out of high school in the minor leagues. Um, so obviously that's a, a, a huge change in philosophy as far as how to develop young pitchers. But he didn't use these words. But the conversation was all about perceived velocity and command. And uh, he brought up the recent uh, – the recent signing of uh, Craig Breslow to, uh, I believe it's to be the general manager of the Red Sox. Right, yeah, former Yale pitcher, pitched, I think, minor league baseball. Played for John Stuper there, who pitched with Cot, with uh, Jim Cott with the Cardinals during that world championship. Yes. So the funny thing is, is when Craig Breslow played minor league baseball out of Yale, he played for the Milwaukee Brewers. I was the pitching coordinator. So Craig was, um, wasn't a big guy. Um, if you, if you wanted to classify him, he was, uh, by the time I showed up my first year as, as coordinator, he was a left-handed reliever type, um, short, not particularly big, went to Yale, very intelligent, uh, left-handed reliever that was all about execution, not necessarily about stuff. And uh, 
had a pretty good curveball. So you could see him, at least in my mind, as a left-handed reliever in the big leagues. And there were some things just to work on. Uh, a lot of things that I had learned from Mike Flanagan, you know, that um, if you're a lefty with some pretty decent stuff, don't be throwing too many slow curveballs, slow breaking balls, slow curveballs to left-handed hitters. It gives them a chance to adjust and different things like that. So here's some of the things that were part of my conversations with Breslow. And uh, the sad part about it is that I was on the road working with either the double A or triple A club. And at the time, wasn't even informed by our director of player development that he releases Craig Breslow. Uh, not something I would have done, but this is the, uh, this is the way things work out sometimes. Very shortly, Craig, I forget who he signed on one, but you know what? He became a left-handed reliever in the big leagues and put together a pretty good career. Now, I wasn't necessarily there when he was putting that career together. So in his background, there might have been instances where he improved his velocity. So his thought process, I can understand, goes down that road. But he was hired like as a director of pitching and all as it with the um, with the Cubs. Uh, and Jim Palmer brought up. I, I don't remember if it was a direct conversation with Greg Breslow or, or, or what exactly, but Jim Palmer brought up that, you know, Breslow, he talks about velocity first, pitch shape second, and command third. And he says he understands the reasoning and the concepts of why that's used nowadays. Um, it's what's well accepted. It's what's considered the norm. But Jim Palmer thought to have it a little backwards, that it was it's about command, pitch selection. And then if you want, I added pitch selection. Then, then you go to pitch shape followed by velocity. Now, the funny twist in that is, all famers like Jim Palmer and Robin Roberts have stated that you have to pitch with your fastball. So if Jim Palmer states you have to pitch with your fastball, this is how the game is played on a major league baseball level, pitch with your fastball and pitch off your fastball. But you need a fastball to pitch in a big, big league successfully. But now he's telling you that the last thing that's important is velocity. So I think it's something that should be uh, that should be heated, very well heated, and and then broken down to you know why would he why would he think that way? Um, and then I uh, had a little bit of unusual free time. And I listened to uh, your podcast with Jim Cott. And I believe you had, you had the question near the end of one of the podcasts, the last podcast, I believe. Uh, um, Jim, what, what could we take away about uh, working with young pitchers and trying to develop young pitchers? And he said, feel and touch is what's important. Learn how to throw strikes, repeat your delivery, and execute your pitches. Never once did he say anything about velocity. Yeah. Um, In fact, you know, what's interesting with Jim is when he was scouted, uh, you know, when he was 19, when he was pitching professionally, 
he admits that he, you know, is still growing, which, you know, some kids are, I was that way too. But, uh, he got to that point without a fastball as by his own admissions. And that was said to him, if you can get a fastball, um, well, you got a shot to be a pretty good pitcher. And that was kind of an understatement, but that wasn't talking about the way that they do it nowadays. And his, his biggest thought, I think a lot of the guys biggest issue with pitchers nowadays is they don't work on their craft enough. They're not on that mound getting, uh, working on, you know, timing and rhythm and feel. Um, but they're, cause they're, they're pitching, their coordination is so regimented in that you throw X number of pitches and, you know, I, I, it's been hard to find a veteran pitcher, uh, favor that to say it's, it's almost cookie cutter in a way. Yes. We, I mean, we've discussed the reasons in the past, as far as, uh, you've brought up the, um, you know, the, uh, downgrading on the financial side, the, the paying for pitchers, you know, similar to the NFL with paying for running backs and lessening their importance. And on the analytical side, I mean, I, I would think that um, on the pure analytic side, that if you had uh, four pitchers, uh, four pitchers each throw, you know, two innings, you're going to try to get through a ball game that way. Uh, there's been discussion this past week on we're in the World Series and both teams, I forget which game, maybe game three. I, I, oh, game three, yeah, that debacle. You know, uh, it, the bullpen game, I mean, I, you know, this, these are things that just couldn't be even heard of. There's a lot of valid points as far as why would somebody want to go to a World Series game to, to watch a bullpen game? This was about um, going to watch stars, going to watch the Jim Palmers, the Robin Roberts, the Jim Cotts, the – Denny McLean's, the Bob Gibson's, the Sandy Koufax's, you know, of the past, uh, you know, we're probably not going to see uh, uh, the game that Smoltz, uh, that one nothing game. Uh, we're probably not going to see, you know, the Pettit-Smoltz game three matchups on those great pitching staffs, um, uh, you know, be, because we it's the system that we're in right now. Um, and that that has to do with, you know, when we talk about training protocols, we've, uh, through the analysis of third time through the lineup and the, and the batting averages go down and all like this, through the conversations that Jim Cott and Jim Palmer have had that if we don't ask the pitchers how to figure out how to get out of tough jams, how to get out of situations when they're younger, coming up in the minor leagues or in college or in high school, then how are they going to learn it on a major league level? Uh, I used to uh, tell all our minor league pitchers, um, and I forget the exact numbers, but just theoretically, I'll, I'll lay it out here. Listen, when 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 you're in um when you're low you're in low A ball, I, I need you to make at least twenty starts. Um. You know, and, and I would want my pitchers, you know, this this is not, you know, pitch five innings and think that I just conquered the world. Um, this is, you know, you're going to pitch deep into games and you're going to do it 20 times. And then when you go up to high A, I'm going to push that up to 25 times. And then when you get to double A, you know, I, I would like if, if we can get close to 30 starts, then we're doing pretty good. And in triple A, we're getting close to the big leagues. 
Because at the time in the big leagues, you'd be making about 35 starts. So how's a person going to learn how to handle that workload and make those starts over the year? For the first time in the big leagues? Um, that's asking a lot. I think that's a recipe for failure. Um, but the mindset isn't there to do that. So what we do is, as we lower workload, just like any training philosophy, any periodization table, as we lower workload, we increase intensity. So now we have a situation where the uh, forced velocity guys of the world, the max effort guys, they go in, throw as hard as you can for as long as you can, and we get you out there. We get somebody else out there, throw as hard as you can for as long as you can, we get you out there. Um, so, yes, the craft of pitching, it's uh, you know, going by the wayside. But, but it is natural if if you take a pitcher and you tell him, all right, you're going to throw one inning today, well, he's going to go out and just lay it all out there for one inning. Right? He's a competitor. What, you know, what, what do you think he's going to do? Try to finesse his way through one inning? No, of course not. Plus, he's being taught from the minor leagues, even in amateur baseball now. You know, just think about all these travel teams and, and you know, you got three or four good pitchers and they might pitch two or three times on a weekend. Why? I'm going to pitch in two innings, three innings, and I'm going to bring them back. Think about high school uh, nowadays. A lot of instances, young pitchers will tell you, well, I usually make one start a week and one relief appearance. Well, the start ends up being a relief appearance because they're throwing about four or five innings, really, you know, a long relief appearance. So we then naturally move into the realm of intensity in our training and in our throwing programs. Um, the advent of long toss programs, where all of a sudden we're going to throw 300 feet because Trevor Bauer did it. Um, you know, we're going to throw 300 feet at max effort sometimes coming out of our throwing slot and the whole thing. And like every training protocol, let's understand something. With the initial advent of long toss programs, people were playing long toss way before some guy came out and decided to market it as a training protocol. Um, but over the years, the people that market such programs uh, you know, for the retail market, uh, base the theory on how they can help you based upon uh, individual program of this one or that one. Um, they then adapt over the years because they see that what they were originally teaching doesn't work. So now all of a sudden, when you talk, you see the long toss gurus, they're going to tell you about, no, you have to maintain your arm slot. No, you have to do this. No, you have to do that. Very rarely, though, did they talk about getting your center of gravity, your navel past your front hip. Very rarely did they talk about how to hinge that front hip properly. Uh, it's all arm-based centered. One of the things in Sandy Koufax's biography uh, that Justin Orndorff brought up was about the first time he read something where he said, pitching is about putting the levers in the proper position. Well, the levers in your body are the bones. He didn't talk about working out this muscle or that muscle or this muscle in order to throw properly. No. Right. So you go to the max effort, you go to the high intensity, 
you go to pitch an inning or two at a time, you're going into that camp. You're going into that, that mode of, of, of pitching. And now everything we talk about is individual muscles, our rotator cuff muscles, okay, our internal rotators, our external rotators. And you see that leak all the way down to youth development and youth baseball where you walk into a ballpark and there's young pitchers doing cross-symmetry exercises. So when it comes to training protocols, um, there's a couple of things that, that I'd like to speak about today. Um, the first one is something that Jim Palmer said. Okay, there's a couple of things that he said that were um, very important uh, because of his background and his experience. He, he deemed it that he was, uh, he was lucky enough to come up in the Orioles system with uh, Calvary Sr. and, you know, quote, unquote, the Oriole way. But he added something to that. He said, there's no shortcuts. That's something that um, when you think about all the things we've discussed about the immediate gratification, the environments we build, you know, the rings, the this, the that, the, all the other things that were continually um, commending and uh, praising people for performance, even at a young age, instead of out of their about their effort, their focus, you know, their feel and their touch, like Jim Cott says, um, we've created that environment, okay, which is a, an environment of shortcuts. Doesn't work, right? Then he said, uh, he told the story of Gilmesh, the young pitcher at the time for the Seattle Mariners, and he went into Baltimore, you know, I, I believe it was probably old Memorial Stadium, and the heat and humidity. And he said, like, I was done by the third inning. I was done. And Palmer said, we don't train outdoors anymore. Everything's indoors. We don't even run in the outfield. We run on a treadmill. We don't even do running like we did in the past, all right, to, to build an aerobic and a muscular endurance base. We run on a treadmill and maybe do some sprints. Or we do some sprints to warm up. It's part of our dynamic warm up. It's not necessarily a training module. The training protocol. Um, we train indoors. What's crazy about that is when I was in spring training with the Orioles, minor league, uh, the minor league facility, we shared a facility with the Miami Dolphins. Now, their weight room, while covered so that you're protected from the sun, was outdoors. Outdoors. So you're learning to train in the heat and the humidity of Miami, Florida. Why? You play your games in Miami, Florida. You're asked to perform in Miami, Florida. If you train properly, the head coach and the training staff believes then you'll have an advantage over the visiting teams that are coming into the heat and humidity of Miami, Florida. Um, so that, that point that Jim Palmer made, even though it sounds like just this simple thought, we don't train outdoors anymore, okay? Training in those environments that you're going to perform in, okay? Not only does it help you on the physical side of being used to those elements, but on the mental side of enduring and completing your work. Again, back to workload. Um, the other part is um, we speak of conditioning, and immediately um, we fall into a category 
they're called strength and conditioning coaches. But a lot of times, things, especially in baseball, become strength-based. Strength, development of strength and power, getting back to intensity. Over A hitter overpowers the baseball, okay? Not the, the thought process of Sadahara-O and Aikido and creating force and controlling force. No, it's pure power. It's we are going to create more force than the ball coming in, and we're going to overpower it. It doesn't matter where it is in the strike zone. We're going to overpower it. We're going to hook every single pitch. I'm a right-handed batter. I'm going to overpower it and hit it from left center to left field, right? Um, You know, the lift and separate model, the whole thing. It goes for pitching, goes for hitting. The game's not played with rhythm and timing as much anymore. But you look at the training protocols, that's going to explain it. You look at the environment in which they're asked to perform, that's going to explain it, all right? And when we get back to the uh, the levers in the body, one of the key issues is in youth development especially, we've spoken in the past about closed-chain kinetic exercise. We have to work the prime movers in our body. You do that with closed chain exercise, or if you want to call it compound exercises. Okay. Um, when we do compound exercises, all the smaller muscles, if you want to call them assistant muscles or stabilizers or um, kinesthetic awareness muscles that add into our posture and our balance, they're all firing up to, to remain stable and to do their job within the function of that compound movement. But our training focus is on the prime mover. Way too early in a child's development, in a young ball player's development, we move into training the assistant muscles, the stabilizer muscles, and they start becoming, through, through the neuromuscular connection, the prime mover. Right. For example, when Nolan Ryan, we've told the story before, was hooked up to at the time, the technology was an electromuscular stimulation to measure which muscles fire up when you do a particular movement. So when he when they put all the, the sensors on his body and the whole thing, they found that his external rotators only fired up to initially slow the arm down. But when you went to an average high school pitcher who performed well, and he was a good good high school pitcher, you know, all county, all region, whatever you want to call it. Jim, did we lose you? Excuse me? So the thing about it is that the assistance muscle has become the prime mover. So as we stated, the assistant muscle, the rotator cuff muscle, becomes the prime mover. That's completely backwards. And this is where we, we run into problems. So the thing that we had discussed, Dave, is that um, we want to make sure that the prime mover is doing their job 
So that's the large muscles that perform the compound close chain uh, kinetic exercise. What happens nowadays is that you see a lot of young uh, pitchers and players, they've worked so much on the stabilizing assistant muscles, the rotator cuff work, the scap stabilization, different things of that nature. They've done a lot of isolation work, um, you know, open chain exercise that the assistant muscle, which is, let's say, the external rotators. So the external rotators initiate the slowing down of the arm in the properly trained individual. However, the assistant muscle now becomes the prime mover, and now you have the rotator cuff firing up during the whole throwing process, which long-term is uh, we're asking a lot of three little rubber bands in our shoulder to become a prime mover, and that's where we end up into the problem. So that is, is something that can't be overstated, can't be overstated. So all the things we've discussed in the past, closed chain exercise. And then when you get into a, into a part of the season where you've progressed and you've done that uh, properly, and let's say you've moved into your teenage years, now we start adding to some of the workload with, with the stabilization and different things. Now there is a point, just in closing, there is a point that there are going to be some instances where you'll need to to do some of that stabilization work to assist of getting that that muscle or that joint up to where it can function as part of the unit. Okay, but in a lot of times that's a, a rare case. Just the fact that you can do the compound closed chain exercise correctly, those stabilizers will fire up and then start to be part of the process. Okay. Um, what I've seen in the youth development is that we jump very, very quickly into the stabilizing assistant muscles because we see the uh, big league pitcher or the minor league strength coach doing that. And yet we are not minor leaguers. We're not that chronological age. We're not that skeletal age and even muscular age. Usually we're, you know, amateur baseball players that are trying to achieve that status. So that, that uh, point can't be uh, overstated. Yeah, we need a little paradigm shift in our our pitching world out there, as well as our hitting world. With um, for next week with everybody, we covered a lot of stuff today, but we're gonna try to give them, give them a little preview of that. I know we're gonna get into some pitching and throwing schedules. Yes, um, it's gonna kind of parallel the the training philosophy and the protocols that I use uh, hands on with my clients. Uh, we've discussed the the close chain kinetic exercises and different things that make up the initial uh, uh, training schedule. And then we're going to move into next week. The, what, if I can uh, use the term on ramp, the on ramping for pitchers and even position players, as far as what do we do to prep for our throwing programs? How do we, how do we initiate our throwing programs? What are the things to focus on and some of the actual schedules that'll help us get, you know, get into the season and beyond. I think it's important. This is a this is a crucial time for kids. One, there's, it's it should be a downtime. There should they should have some downtime, but uh, in preparation for their season, it should be a gearing up. Where I think you see guys today, and you correct me if I'm wrong, trying to enter spring training at a hyped up physical uh, level, and that's uh, that's not the way you want to do it. You want to ease into it and have some sort of periodization to make sure you're peaking at the right time. I would imagine. Yes. 
that in a perfect world is, is what we're striving for. But we do understand that, you know, like the old veteran coming to spring training for the big league club that put the numbers up and is still healthy and producing, you know, the way he approaches spring training and being ready and different things to gear up for the season is a little different than the guy that's, you know, trying to make the team. And that's what you see in youth development with a lot of these travel programs and different things is um, a lot of those programs don't initially have any buildup season built within it. So it's like you show up day one and you're, and you're ready to perform or you're ready to try out, you're ready to show your, you know, your stuff. So it's a, it's a tight rope that we walk, but hopefully with further discussion, we can get to the point where uh, we find some kind of balance in order to it. Yeah. It's misguided in a way they're there. It's, I don't know if it's an ego trip or this, a lot of these guys have never played or coached at a high level. So they, they think it's a badge of courage to say, we never take a break. We're, we're, we're 12 months out of the year. And that's, that's the most asinine thing they could possibly say. Yes. You, you get that. And you get the high school coach who states that uh, I'm going to train my pitchers through fatigue continually uh, year round so that when it's uh, crunch time in the game, they know how to deal with fatigue. Well, you know, in theory, I understand your thought process, but in application, it doesn't work because we can't do that. We can't do that. You've got to have somebody guiding these kids that actually, if you were to do something that high level, I mean, that to me, that's, that's something that I phrase training on the other side of pain. And you could do that not so much from a physical sense, but from a mental sense, but you've got to be a highly trained professional in order to put a, a, an adult through something like that. But you certainly don't do that to that level to a kid. Cause they're not, like, as you said, they're not fully grown physically, their bones, their muscles, their ligaments, their tendons are all still forming. And then mentally there, there is a, I agree, there is a degree that you can do that to, but the way they're doing it is again, I hate to, I hate to keep hitting on my very technical scientific term, it's asinine. Well, think of it this way. We do have a way in which young ball players can learn to deal with fatigue in their training protocols and in their you know, game day performance. And it's called play multiple sports because within the multiple sport environment, there's going to be times that mentally and physically you now are doing something, you're asking your body to do something that it may not be naturally gifted at doing. And that's the view, one of the beauties of playing multiple sports. We do learn to play with fatigue. We do learn to deal with conflict that maybe, you know, our natural gifts doesn't allow us to just simply show up and get through. And this is a, this is a rarely talked about topic in the importance of dealing with multiple sports. Instead, we answered the question by saying, we're going to play baseball year round. I'm going to train you to where you learn to be mentally tough and physically tough so you can endure. Well, um, last time I checked, uh, executing the next pitch, focusing on the next pitch, whether you're going to throw it, hit it, or catch it, uh, is not similar to you know training to be a Marine. Um, it's a different ball game, and hopefully we can uh, – start to realize it's a different ball game. Yeah. And I, I know I keep prolonging the, the, the podcast with it, but you know, it's a good point. I think for our audience, Ted Kubiak and I were talking the other day on the phone, former shortstop with the Oakland A's three time world series champion. He, he's been on our show a couple of times and he and I talk almost every day, either email, text or call. And 
we got into the discussion about the multi-sport athlete and he has a point of view where he thinks performing the act of, uh, of the sport was more important than playing another sport. And I understood his point and I was able to articulate it back to him, I think, um, but we'll, we'll, we're going to talk again today. But my point to him that I, I, I think he understood more now was the physical act of playing another sport is good because it gets your body moving and doing different things in your sport does. It makes it stronger. Um, you learn to play with fatigue in a different way. But uh, I approached it from the mental side of it. I said a lot of times these kids don't want to play another sport because they may not be as good at it. But becoming a beginner again at another sport and learning the fundamentals from the basis all the way up, that mental approach to it actually makes you better and more concentrated in your primary sport if it happens to be baseball and you're doing basketball. And that was a point that he, that he understands that point. He got it, but he wasn't thinking that way. It was kind of a paradigm shift for both of us where, uh, where I kind of understood what he was talking about. Um, you know, you get stronger by performing the acts of what the things you're trying to do. And my point was from a mental standpoint, I, I, I have a physical standpoint, is that becoming a beginner is good because it reinforces the things that it actually heightens your concentration levels, whatever it took for you mentally to get to that stage in your life. And then once you reach a certain level of fundamentals with your secondary area, you can actually use thematic interconnectivity to, I don't want to say skip some steps, but to, uh, I guess, rate, uh, I guess heighten your learning curve. Let's just say that that way. But, uh, yeah, key point. I know Ted will be listening to this and he'll, it'll, uh, he'll, he'll, we'll get some discussion going about it. Maybe we'll bring him on one day and you guys can, can talk about the, the different points of view. Uh, yeah. He's got so, a good, he's got a good mind. He's got a good, uh, he's got a good point. He does. And I, I, I understand it. And uh, he understood mine. So um, that's how this stuff gets solved is dialogue. Um, right. But also remember that, that um, <clears throat> here on this podcast, a lot of times we're talking about youth development. Yes. Um, and in youth development, the primary goal is to create the largest mo- foundation in motor skill development that we can. Because if we have learned to acquire a variety of different motor skills, we have gone through the process that you just spoke of many, many times over. And it's been proven that if you've done that, then when you're a pitcher learning a new pitch, the whole process of learning that new motor skill, the whole process of dealing with the frustration of being a beginner, being a novice, and now have to go through those steps becomes easier. Your emotions are more under control because you've dealt with it in the past. Everything else, your focus increases, as you stated, because you've acquired a variety of motor skills in your youth. Um, There's a direct correlation between the amount of motor skills that you acquire as a child, all right, and, and, uh, and, and even through your teenage years, that relates to the ability to adapt and acquire new motor skills as an adult. And that's what we're lacking. That's what we're lacking in youth development, that we're not opening up these players to a variety of ways to learn motor skills, new motor skills, both on the mental side and the physical side. The mental side comes into play because the frustration of being a beginner, okay? You're well accomplished at something. You're a pitcher. You have a good fastball. You got a good changeup. And now we're trying to we're trying to work on that curveball, and we're not getting the fingers out front. We're not spinning the ball the right way. We're changing our arm slot. If we're not used to being the beginner from our past and a variety of different things that we've done physically, 
at that point in time, there's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of stuff that's going to enter the picture that interferes in the actual learning process on how to throw curveball properly. These are things that aren't talked about. These are things that are kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're misshaped or they're misguided because they're attempting to prove their point. They're attempting to create an environment where they see it this way and that's the way it has to be or should be. And this is the way I've done it. And they don't realize some of the things, um, because obviously if, if you're, if you're a coach of, um, of a travel baseball program, okay, or you're an organizer of travel program, if you can get the kids to play for you in the fall, train with you in the winter, prep with you in the spring, play with you all spring, you end up making more money. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you hit it right on the head. Okay, you end up making more money, which which I understand. Everybody Everybody's out there trying to make a living and, and doing different things. But, um, you know, it takes us back to the whole story of, uh, you know, Selling your soul to the devil, if you want to speak, uh, you know, that whole, that whole story, story, that theory. There's different decisions that we have to make on a day-to-day basis in, in youth uh, player development that sometimes it's not going to be rewarding to begin with. Sometimes it's not going to put more money in our pockets. Sometimes it's going to create an environment in which we're putting the kid first. All right? God forbid, right? Yeah. And I still think that if we do that, Everybody else is going to come out ahead, all right? The players are going to have a more enjoyable experience. The team is going to be more focused because they're having fun. We've discussed that in the past. More focused means that we train properly and we do the things that we're supposed to do. We're not there trying to sell products. We're not trying to sell my way or the highway. We're trying to do what's best for each individual. And when we do that, I will guarantee you that in the long run, their overall performance in whatever sport they play is going to be far exceeding whether they were placed in that negative environment where adults are continually telling them what to do. And basically their, their, the, the child's self-interest is not put to the forefront. No, I think that's a good way to close it out. And that's kind of why we do the podcast. That's why you're doing what you do in your area of South Carolina. And we hope that, you know, if, if you're listening to this podcast, pass this one to one friend and uh, give it to them. A friend that you know needs to hear this that may be gone astray a little bit with their kid or coaching a program. And, you know, we'll just we'll just save the baseball world one one kid at a time. How about that? But um, So with our, with our show here today, uh, we appreciate your support, audience. Uh, make sure that you give Jim five stars on Toe the Rubber. Write some nice comments underneath it because we do battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in Major League Baseball. 74 countries tuning in. Shoot Jim your questions. He, he gives out his information every week. He's active on social media. If you need to shoot them through me, I'll certainly relay them to him. But let's get active out there and and uh, let, let iHeartRadio know that they made the right choice putting them on their powerful podcast network. And to Blackout Coffee, thanks for the friendship. Listeners, and same thing, pass out the code to a friend too. It's getting out to be holiday time. I'm sitting here drinking my Blackout Coffee, my espresso in my Blackout Coffee cup, believe it or not. And um, I'll put a mug shot out there. I call that and take a picture of my mug. I'll put a mug shot out there today to show everybody. But uh, thank you for the support. 20% off at the uh, at the counter when you type in David, all capital letters, D-A-V-I-D, the number 20. 20% off your first purchase. You can buy as much as you want. And then 15% off in perpetuity. Just 
because of the friendship. So that's a nice friend to have right there. I love coffee. So any friend of mine that's going to give discounts on coffee there, they've got a lifelong friend in me. So Jim, thanks so much for a great show today. A lot of great information. Look forward to the throwing program, pitching programs next week. I think our audience will be tuned in. I'm sure you'll tease it a little bit on social as you usually do. Yeah, we'll get some things out there so that you can uh, visually see some of the things we're going to talk about next week. And uh, until then, uh, thank you, everybody. And we'll be speaking with you next week. Sounds good. Have a great day. Audience, we look forward to the next show.